So Jesus, we've come to set our eyes on the cross. And we pray today that you would do a work of renewal in us. Set our gaze upon it, help us not to look away. Give us deeper understanding of what you were doing in your death and in your suffering. Center our lives around it. Father God, would you do the work of salvation today through the cross in the lives of those here who have not placed their faith in you. May they see in your cross the greatest act anyone has ever done. May they be compelled and drawn as we have been compelled and drawn. I have your way now with us. Would you guard my mouth to speak what is true according to your word in submission to it? Make us rich now. Make us rich in truth through your word. Through a meditation upon the cross of your son, Father, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to look at the end of chapter 52 and the beginning of chapter 53. If you've been with us in our study of the book of Isaiah, we have come now to the pinnacle of the entire book. So this is what everything that we have looked at up to this point has been building to. This is it. Uh, everything that we have looked at about Isaiah declaring to God's people that he was judging them to purify them and then he was going to purify the nations and then he declared that he was uh, doing a work of salvation to bring people from every nation, every tribe, every people group into his eternal kingdom. And then he revealed that because we were unable to and his people Israel were unable to accomplish that work uh, as they were called to, that he was going to raise up a true and better servant who would do that work. We know him as Jesus. And up to that point, everyone had expected and rejoiced that this servant would come. And now we come to chapter 53. And what we find is a declaration of how the servant will accomplish the work of God. He will accomplish it through his suffering and through his death in a way that no one expected. This is the how of all the chapters that have led up to this one now of the saving work that needs to be done in order for God to purchase a people for himself and bring them into his eternal kingdom. And we would say, how will that occur? And the answer to that is now in Isaiah 53. He will do it through killing his servant, who we now know is his son. And so we come to look at the cross of Jesus today to set our eyes upon it and to understand what took place when Jesus died on the cross. My guess is for many of you who are followers of Jesus, you have been asked at some point what you believe and you have responded with something similar to, well, I believe Jesus died for my sins. You've probably said something similar to that, yes? But my guess is also that when you say that, you may have a notion of what you mean, but sometimes we don't always fully understand what it is we mean when we say that. When we say, Jesus died for my sins, we don't fully realize all that we mean when we say that. It's a true statement. It's a right statement. But it means so much more than I think we often fathom. So here's my ambition today is to give you a deeper understanding of what it means when we say Jesus died for our sins and to ask the question, why did Jesus suffer and die? I'm gonna give you six reasons 
why Jesus suffered and died. Let me recommend to you as well a great book called, it's just a short little book, called The Passion of Jesus Christ by John Piper, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Suffer and Die. It's tremendously helpful reflection upon the cross and all that took place there. Because as simple as the gospel is, the death of Jesus as the ultimate act in human history is not a simple thing. It carries with it great accomplishments and great weight. And perhaps some of you who are not followers of Jesus and are asking, have probably asked the question at some point, when Christians say that Jesus died for their sins, how does that work? Like, how is it that someone else can die and you somehow get a benefit from that? Like, how does Jesus dying on a cross actually get you, and probably you thought entrance into heaven, uh, the Christian might say, it gets us righteousness so that we are able to be in the presence of God. And so we are going to hopefully, hopefully answer that question. And for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, can I just tell you up front that my hope is that by causing us to gaze on the cross today, you might see that you should believe in Jesus. You should give him your very life because he offers you something no one else can offer and he has done something no one else can do. And that you would see in him a picture of one who is worthy of your love, worthy of your affection and worthy to be followed, worthy of your whole life. And follower of Jesus that you would begin to see where your life does not align with the cross. That you would know, Christian, that the cross is our ethic, it is our morality, it is our identity, it is supposed to saturate and stain everything that we are and everything that we do. And we, as Isaiah testifies for us in 53, all like sheep have gone astray that we wander from that and we are going to do, I pray, the hard work today of recentering ourselves around the cross of Jesus. So let's look at it together. It's a passage that warrants being read in its fullness altogether. So I just wanna read, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53, which is 12 verses, chapter 53. So let's look at it together. And then we'll observe six reasons why Jesus Christ suffered and died. Verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. 
all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before Jesus lived. And we find in him the fulfillment of these things. So again, I want to point out to you six things that this text tells us. And we could, we could list 600 were we to go throughout the Bible. But we're going to look at six reasons why Jesus came to suffer and die so that we might understand what we mean when we say he has saved me from my sins. He has died on the cross. And when he died, he died for my sins. So the first reason is this, to be glorified and to glorify the Father. The first reason Jesus died on the cross and the ultimate reason Jesus suffered and died was to be glorified and to glorify the Father. Look at Isaiah 52, 13. It begins by saying, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So there's that word exalted. Now you heard that phrase as well as exalted, high and lifted up. One thing that might be important for you to know is that that phrase only occurs, high and lifted up, occurs only four times in the entire Bible. And it occurs all four times in the book of Isaiah. The other three times that that phrase appears, it refers to God the Father, that he is high and lifted up. If you remember Isaiah chapter six, the vision of Isaiah, of God in the temple, and he says, oh, I saw God and he was high and lifted up. And Isaiah is so undone by the vision of God's holiness and perfection that he believes he's going to die unless God does something and God does do something. He purifies Isaiah so that he might not die having seen the holiness of God. But in that vision, we find that phrase, I saw the Lord in his temple high and lifted up. Now, what does that mean? That three times we find this phrase high and lifted up every time it refers to God the Father. And now here in the description of the servant of God, Jesus, we hear that the servant will be high and lifted up. Well, it might not mean much to you until you remember that in Isaiah 42, verse 8, and in a couple other places throughout Isaiah, God declares something. Do you remember what he declares in Isaiah 42, 8 when he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I give to who? To no one. In other words, I am unique among all beings and types of beings. 
I am the one who alone set the planets in motion, put the stars in the sky. I created it all, and I am the only one who is worthy of glory. Now to follow on the heels of that in Isaiah 42, just a few chapters later now, and say that this servant will be high and lifted up and exalted, in other words, will be glorified, is to say that this is not a merely human servant. This must be something else. This must be something beyond just a human being who will come and suffer in the way that we're hearing about. This must be God in the flesh. This must be one who goes far beyond what a human is. And that, by the way, friends, if you're asking the question, how can the death of one person count for the death of so many? The first thing you need to know is that this is no ordinary person. This is God in the flesh, fully human, fully God. So his death can do something that no other death can do. That's the first place that we start. Now, So we see that Jesus in his suffering now recognize that it's saying the servant is going to be high and lifted up and exalted. And we might think, okay, that's referring to Jesus after his death and in his resurrection, then he'll be high and exalted. But no, in this text, everything that this text is pointing to is the suffering of the servant. And then it's in the suffering of the servant that he is exalted, not in coming through the suffering on the other side, although that is worthy of his exaltation and glory as well. But his glory is found in his suffering, not just on the other side of it. In other words, what we're hearing is one of the reasons the servant, Jesus, will suffer and die is to get glory for himself. And then the second thing we find in Isaiah 53, 10. Now, to go down a few verses later, and we find this in in, in verse 10. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, pause right there. It's, it's a little aside from the thought I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make, but I want you to get that because the ultimate answer to who killed Jesus, what's the ultimate answer to that question? God the Father planned it from eternity past, determined that it should come to pass, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, obeyed and delighted to obey the will of the Father. Now, in a more temporal sense, my sin killed Jesus, the sin of humankind. But in the ultimate sense, the plan of the cross was not humans enacting an injustice upon Jesus that he could not undo, but that Jesus went willingly because the Father willed to crush him. He has put him to grief, meaning God the Father has put Jesus the Son to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That prolonging of days is a little allusion to the resurrection, that he wouldn't stay dead, but that his days would be prolonged. Then the will of the Lord, or a better translation might be the the pleasure of the Lord. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, what it's saying is the son in his suffering doesn't just get glory for himself and doesn't just aim at that glory. He also gets glory for the father because it is in the son's hand that the will or the pleasure of God is accomplished. It thrives in his hand. In other words, God the father is glorified through the work of Jesus. So the first thing that we see when we look at the cross and we ask the question, why did Jesus suffer and die? The first answer and the greatest answer to that question is to get glory for himself and to get glory for God. 
Here's how uh, Jesus said it in John. We can hear it directly from his mouth. In John 13, verse 31 and 32, right after Judas, who has betrayed Jesus, has left the room and now is gone to turn him over to the authorities, says this, when he had gone out, speaking of Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is the Son of Man, now is the Son of Man glorified. In other words, thinking about his death, which is at hand, and speaking as if it is begun now, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. In other words, through his suffering, he is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. So this is a great, beautiful exchange. Do you see it? The Son of Man is glorified in his suffering and that glorifies the Father because the Father is glorified. He turns around and glorifies the Son in himself in his crucifixion to say he is worthy of glory. So right there in John 13, what we see Jesus talking about is the pleasure that the Father and the Son have in exalting one another, in glorifying one another. This is not true for anyone else. Here's what I want you to hear, church family. Often we think of the purpose of the cross, the primary purpose of the cross, as many things, chief among them, saving people. And the purpose of the cross indeed is to save people, but the chief purpose of the cross is not to save people. The chief purpose of the cross is to glorify God the Father and God the Son. To put it this way, if it did not glorify God the Father and God the Son to redeem people for himself, he would not have done it. Because his glory is his motive, not the redemption of people. But because it glorifies him to redeem a people for himself, the byproduct of his seeking his glory is that we are redeemed. God is radically God-centered in all that he does. Everything he pursues and does is for his own glory because he is the only being worthy of glory. There is no one like him. And so he, in his radical God-centeredness, brings about the cross first and foremost because he decided that it pleased him and glorified him to purchase a people for himself through that work. There's no end of errors. Friends, listen to me. You need to get this because there is no end of errors that will come into your estimation of what God will and won't do if you believe that something other than God's glory is his primary motivating act in the work of the cross. God is radically God-centered in all that he does. And oh, that we would be that radically God-centered in all that we do. That his glory would be our aim, our motive, are the thing that wakes us up in the morning and causes us to go, I want to live another day. Because as Paul said, to live is Christ. In other words, what he's saying is when Paul writes that, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What he means, if I die, I get to go be with the glorious one. And if I live, I get to glorify him another day here on the planet while I breathe. And that's what I want. And so I can't determine, he says for a minute, I can't determine, actually wait, no, I can't. It's better to depart and be with the Father. That's better. I want that. But as long as I'm alive and drawing breath, I get another day to glorify Jesus. I will be radically God-centered again today in the pursuit of the glory of the Father, in the pursuit of the glory of the Son. 
So the first answer to the question, why did Christ suffer and die, is to glorify himself and to glorify the Father. The second reason that we find in this text is to reveal the horror of sin. The second reason we see why did Jesus suffer and die is to reveal the horror of sin. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says this. As many were astonished at you, Isaiah is painting this picture of people just almost with their mouth gaping open at what they're looking at. Now, what are they looking at? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. So verses 14 and 15 are telling us about the horrible suffering of the cross. They're painting the picture for us and saying his death and his suffering will be so great that he will be almost unrecognizable as a human being. So much so that kings who possess power, when they gaze upon the suffering of this one, would shut their mouths in awe of what it is that they are gazing upon. Now, the question comes to us, and I think appropriately so, right? Or let me explain two there. Sorry, before I get to that question. Let me say two. In verse 15 there, he says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. That's an allusion to his blood's ability to bring the nations into the kingdom of God. His blood sprinkled, in other words, his, his blood shed for the salvation of the nations, which has been one of Isaiah's themes, right? He wants to bring people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, people of every background, right? He wants them all to come into his kingdom. And so it's alluding to that. And it's saying, even as he's sprinkling them with his blood, his death will be so horrific and his suffering will be so immense not just the physical suffering he endures, but the suffering of bearing the weight of sin for all humankind and separation from the Father. He has suffered as no one else has suffered. And it will be so great and it will be so immense that even kings would not know how to respond. They would shut their mouths gazing upon this act that he has performed. So now the question comes to us, why did the, why did the death of Jesus have to be so horrific? Well, have you ever asked that question? I mean, why, not, why not a simple death? You know, I mean, quick, quick, and, quick and easy sounds silly to say, but you get what I mean, right? I mean, why not, why not a painless death? Why not just, it, wouldn't just dying be enough and then the penalty could be paid? Because we know that the, the penalty for sin, Romans tells us, is death. The wages of sin is death. So why not just a simple death? The answer, I think, is because the horror of the death of Jesus shows us the horror of our sin. That when we look at the cross and the mutilation of the cross and the suffering of the cross and, and the disfigurement of Jesus on the cross, rather than look away, we are to gaze upon it and we are to say, this is what my sin does. This is how horrible my sin is. An awful act must be caused by an awful thing. If we wonder, I mean, we are prone to minimize our sin. Church, yes, would you say that? We are so prone to minimize our sin. Friends, I, I remember going 
I don't remember, I was in my 20s, I think, when The Passion of the Christ came out. Y'all remember this film? I went and I sat with a friend. We, we went and we sat apart from each other. We were like, we need to just, I need to be alone with God, even though I'm in a theater of people. So usually I had a hooded sweatshirt. I put it, when the suffering began, I put it up over my head. And when they pressed the crowns, the, the crown of thorn into his head, when they whipped his back and I saw the flesh come off of it, when they hung him on the cross and blood drenched over him, I wept and I couldn't look. I could not look because what I knew was that what I was witnessing and the horror of it, I caused it. I caused it. That's how horrific my sin is. And I don't want to minimize it anymore. I don't want to treat it as if it's no, no big thing. And when I look at the cross, what is magnified for me is the absolute horror of my sin. And friends, if we minimize our sin, it's because we minimize the greatness of God. Don't you know that our sin is not, we treat our sin as if it's a less than ideal way to live. And it is. We treat it as if it diminishes our, our thriving and flourishing. And it does. We treat it as if it's, hurts other people and therefore we should be sorry. It does and we should. But none of that, none of that is the true reason why our sin is so egregious. Our sin is egregious because it is an act of taking away glory from one who is worthy of glory, infinitely so, and glorifying lesser things in his place. It is saying, no, no, you're not worthy of absolute glory. This TV is worthy of absolute glory. This thing that entertains me. When I am proud, I strip glory from God and I take it for myself. When I lust, I declare that God is not as glorious as my sexual affections. When I lie, I trade the glory of God for comfort and security. And again and again it goes. You list your sin and every single one of us can make that list and say, the horror of it displayed on the cross that I now see is I have a physical manifestation of how horrific my sin is. The horror of it is that it strips glory from God. That's what makes it so egregious. The third thing that we see, why did Jesus suffer and die, is to teach us not to love the praise of men more than the pleasure of God. To teach us not to love the praise of men more than the pleasure of God. Look at verse three. It says, he, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So verse three is telling us about the rejection of Jesus by people. Now recognize that happens in a multi-layered way in the life and death of Jesus. The cross is the ultimate expression of his rejection and of his being despised. And the rulers that put him on the cross put him there because he refused to dance for their applause. He refused to say, I'll line up with what you're saying about God, even though it's not true. 
I will declare what is true and I will call you to repentance. And in doing so, I will end up on a cross because I will not seek to please you. I will seek to please God. I will live for his pleasure, not for your applause. But it happens, like I said, in a multi-layered way. Even his disciples, even Peter, upon whom he says, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Even he, when Jesus spoke about his suffering, said, no, 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 far be it from you to suffer. Don't talk like that. And he has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. You do not understand the heart or the will of God and what his purposes or intentions are. I must suffer and I must die because it is God's will to be glorified by redeeming a people for himself through my blood. And I will accomplish that purpose. So even those who knew him best and abandoned him ultimately stuck with him all the way to the cross. They did the best of anyone, by the way. They got all the way to the cross before they jetted. But he was rejected and despised far before that. So Jesus' whole life is one of rejection and being despised at multiple points. As it becomes clearer and clearer who he is, fewer and fewer walk with him. And as it becomes clearer and clearer what his mission is, fewer and fewer walk with him. But here's the the question that I have for us. Is do we live, do we live for the praise of men or the pleasure of God? I find it to be a helpful litmus test for me. Now, you may have your own litmus test, but a helpful litmus test for me is always when someone, you get in those conversations where someone asks you about some issue, you know, and you can think of a thousand of them, and you know that when they're asking you, essentially, usually, I'm a pastor, so often they're asking me, like, what does the Bible say about this, or what do you, what do you believe about this? So let's say they ask you, well, what do you believe about, and you fill in the blank, some cultural issue, something, and you know that they want you to give an answer that is different from what the word of God requires you to say. You know the answer that they would like to receive, and the one for which you will not be scoffed at is something different than what the Bible teaches. It's always a litmus test for me in that moment, whether I'm living for the pleasure of God or the praise of men, what do I say? Do I speak the truth in love? Or do I hedge away from it? Do I find a way to skirt around it? Or do I remain silent? And silence is no better than speaking a falsehood, friends. That's a helpful litmus test for me. Maybe it is for you as well, but maybe you you have a different one. But ask yourself the question, do I live for the praise of men or the pleasure of God? And the cross is this great gift for us in so many things. But one of the great gifts of the cross is that it reminds us, it gives us something to compel us to live for the pleasure of God, not the praise of men. Fourth thing we see in the text, why Jesus came to suffer and die is to bear the wrath of God as our substitute. Look at verses four through six. This really is the center of the whole text. And if I could send you away with one thing. Like if I could preach a one-point sermon, this is the one point I would have preached to you today. Look at verse four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, what it's saying is he bore the death that we should have died. When it says he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, it's talking about in his death, he died the way we should have died. 
And as he carried those things for us, even while he did that, what was our response to that? What was the human response to that? We considered him smitten and afflicted by God. In other words, rather than saying he is God's servant doing God's will in a way that I did not, we say God must have rejected him. We consider him smitten by God and afflicted. But, in other words, but that was not the case. That perception is wrong. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So there are three ways that the text is telling us right there that the penalty he received was our penalty and the reward received from it is our reward. He takes the punishment, and we get the reward. Now, if you've been in church a while, that's probably not a new concept. You've probably heard that before, right? But here's the thing I want to, I want to kind of reinforce for us in, in hearing this, right? That is the language that we just read. That's the language of substitution. By that, what I mean by that is that God had wrath towards sin that had to be poured out as a, as a payment or there was a penalty to be paid for sin. And because that penalty had to be paid, someone had to pay it. And rather than us paying it, Jesus stepped in to pay it on our behalf. He was our substitute. And what was he bearing when he was on the cross? The central thing that was taking place on the cross was that the wrath of God for sin was being poured out upon Jesus. Now here's why I make such a big deal of that. Because there are many theologians, pastors, preachers, teachers, there are many that want to make the cross about something other than the wrath of God being poured out. In fact, they want to deny that God has wrath towards sin at all because they think it's unbecoming to paint a picture of a God who has wrath for sin. They want to paint a picture of a God who loves, but not one who has wrath. But my friends, the scriptures just cannot justify that explanation. They just can't. Again and again here, and I'll show you in Romans 3 in just a second, we see that God absolutely, positively has wrath towards sin. And the only question is, where will that wrath be expressed? On you or on Jesus? And, to say, and, and you know, usually those who want to dismiss the idea of the wrath of God uh, want to do so because they want to say that ultimately... Ultimately, even those who don't trust in Jesus will ultimately be brought into the presence of God because God is loving, not wrathful. But again, the scriptures just don't justify that. Here's the other, the way then the cross operates in that way of thinking is that rather than being a wrath-bearing object, a place where the penalty for sin is paid on your behalf and on my behalf so that our salvation is by grace through faith and not by our own works because the penalty is paid by Jesus, the work is done by Jesus, rather than it being what we call a substitutionary atonement, Rather than that being the case, it becomes an act of moral example for us. And so we look at the cross and there's no penalty being paid on the cross. It is simply an act of self-sacrificial love that we should look at, admire, and then say, I should want to be like that. And because I see this moral example now, my heart fills with love for God and in loving him, I am saved. But friends, here's the danger of that. I hope you see it already. 
The danger of that is that the weight of your salvation is no longer on the sacrifice of Jesus and the penalty paid by him. The weight of it is on your ability to follow the example that you see set for you on the cross, which means it is still a salvation that has to be earned by something you do rather than by something that was done for you. And can you honestly tell me that you think you can follow the example of Jesus on the cross? It's a dangerous place to be. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God as our substitute. The wrath you should have borne and I should have borne. And this is why his love is so amazing because he did not sacrifice his wrath to express his love, nor did he sacrifice his love to express his wrath. But he made a way that both could be completely fulfilled. Here's how Romans says it. Romans 3, 23 and 25 says it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's our problem, yes? We have, a, we have an issue. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, to which we say yes and amen. We are justified, in other words, we are made legally right before God because of what Jesus did and it's a gift of grace, this redemption that he works, that's awesome. How did he do that? Should be the next question. And the response is in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation, I know it's a big confusing word. It just means this, real simple. Wrath-bearing object. That's what that word means. So in other words, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We got a problem, but we are justified by the grace of God through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. Awesome. How did he bring about that redemption that we can receive by grace? How did that happen? And the text goes on to say, he accomplished that redemption by being a propitiation, by being a wrath-bearing object. On the cross, he bore the wrath of God, the penalty for sin, so that you and I might not have to bear it. Are you with me, church? It's the precious doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Fourth thing we see, oh, sorry, fifth thing we see. Why did Jesus suffer and die? To be our example when we suffer unjustly. I love this. Look at verse seven through nine. To be our example when we suffer unjustly. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. In other words, at a human level, we know that God ultimately willed the crushing of the son, but at a human level, Jesus' cross uh, is the greatest example of injustice that has ever been suffered, right? There, Jesus is, is the, he's the perfect savior, savior for everyone, but for oppressed people, like if you come from an oppressed people group, oh, Jesus is for you because he knows what it is to be oppressed. He knows. And so he says he was oppressed. He suffered great injustice, right, is what it's getting at. And then it says, yet, how did he respond to that oppression? Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? In other words, what verses seven through nine is getting at is that even though Jesus on the cross suffered great injustice, he, one of the things he gives us in the cross is he gives us an example of how to respond 
to injustice, to entrust ourselves to God, to know that when we look at the cross, if God can work and intend to work through the cross, this great act of injustice, if he can use that and intend to use that so that he brings about good for his people, then we can know that there is no injustice we would ever suffer, no matter how bad, no matter how egregious, there is no injustice we could suffer through which we can not look at the cross and say, God can and will work this for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When you suffer for righteousness sake, when you suffer for the sake of righteousness, whatever that suffering may look like, when you suffer for the color of your skin, friends, when you suffer because you stand for righteousness at work, when you suffer for any cause of righteousness or any bearing of the identity of God, what you can know in that suffering is you have a savior who has suffered injustice and he has shown you what it looks like to entrust yourself to God in the midst of that injustice. To trust him in it. The the sixth and final thing that we have in this text, just in this text, why did Jesus suffer and die? Last answer, to make righteous children for God. Now we said at the very beginning, that God's chief purpose was his own glory, but we praise him because that does not mean that he did not purpose and intend to save people because he absolutely did. And not just to save them, but the beauty of it is to, is to make them not just redeemed slaves, but to make them children, sons and daughters, with all the rights and privileges of sons and daughters. That's one of the things worked by the cross. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. Now get that, because that's an interesting phrase, right? When his soul makes an offering for sin, in other words, when he is crushed, we saw just the stanza before that, when he's put to death, he will see his offspring. Do dead men see offspring? No, so he must be talking about something other than physical offspring, He must be talking about spiritual offspring. And then look at what he goes on to say in verse 11. Through his death, Jesus will create spiritual offspring, sons and daughters for God. And then verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. In other words, Through his sacrifice, through his bearing of their iniquities, through his wrath-bearing work, he creates righteousness that can be imputed or given to all those who would come to him in faith. And when he imparts that righteousness, he doesn't just make you a righteous slave. He makes you a son or daughter, offspring of the father. So what we learn from verses 10 and 11 is that the cross produced righteous offspring, righteous children for God. What a gift. What a good thing. Friends, remember this. Because, right? Because the cross does not just help you hate your sin when you see the horror of it. And it doesn't just remind you that God is radically God-centered and that he does everything for his own glory. And it doesn't just remind you, uh, we already said the horror of your sin. It doesn't just remind you that you are freed from the prison of approval seeking from people. 
doesn't just give you an example to follow when you suffer injustice. It makes you a son or daughter of the king. You belong to him. And in those moments where you wonder if he loves you and you wonder, like, am I, do I belong to him? And, like, is he still for me, not against me? Be reminded that the cross, the cost of the cross, the horror of the cross made you a son or daughter. And if he went to that great a length to make you a son or daughter, would he remove you from his family? He has already done the hardest thing he could have ever done to bring you into his family. What else could be done to take you out of it? There is nothing. You belong to him. You belong to him. He has chosen to glorify himself by making righteous children. And if you have come to him by faith, you are his. So friends, here's here's the bottom line. Some of you are not followers of Jesus and you've had objection after objection to the gospel. You've had objections to Jesus. You've had objections probably mostly not to Jesus, but to the church, if, if my conversations in this area are any indicator. And you've heard again and again, we're a bunch of hypocrites and we don't always get it right and we don't love well. And can I just stop all of that for a moment and say, look at the cross. Gaze at nothing else but the cross. If everything that we have just said about what Jesus has done on the cross, then it is clearly the greatest act in all of human history. And is one like that not worthy of your allegiance? Is he not worthy of your life? Put aside all the other objections for one moment and ask yourself, when I gaze at the cross, do I see one that is worthy to be called my God, my Lord, my Savior? Follower of Jesus, Christian, Perhaps, as Isaiah declares, like sheep we have gone astray and something other than the cross of Jesus has begun to mark our life. The pursuit and love of power, the comfort of money, the pursuit of entertainment and pleasure. I don't know what it is. The central marker of your life and of my life is to be the cross of Jesus. Return to it and love him Gaze upon his cross and love him. He will stir the embers of your affection into a white, hot, raging inferno as you gaze upon the cross. As your affections dwindle, don't look anywhere else. Don't look for little uh, nuances and little subtle ideas to try and re-spark the flame of affection for God. Return to the cross and gaze upon it and sit in silence looking again and again at the cross and you will find once again that the embers of the ashes are stirred into a great fire. Come. Come. Pray with me. So Lord Jesus, we We've gazed upon your cross and I pray that we've done so without looking away. Lord, I asked at the beginning of this that you might do the work of salvation in the hearts and minds and lives of those who have, who have held you at arm's length. And so now I'll say for those of you for whom that is the case, if you sense in your spirit a prompting from God You can simply say something along these lines to him. God, I recognize that I have rebelled against you. I have sinned. 
and I am worthy to be eternally damned because of it. But I see now that you have paid the penalty for my sin in your son, Jesus Christ, and I believe. I take his sacrifice for myself, and I give you my life. I want to be satisfied in all that you are for me in Jesus Christ, and I want to walk with you all my days. And Jesus, for my brothers and sisters, reestablish us at the cross. Bring us back again, renewed again, back to the cross. As we sing now to you, receive our praise and thanksgiving. We adore you. There's no one better than you. May the way we sing and the way we live proclaim that that is absolutely true. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you stand let's sing together as we close our time in worship.